0: we we do exalt you this morning. You alone are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And so God, as as we open up your word, may we hear from you. Not hear from me, not hear from the music. God, may we hear from you and your spirit. We submit to you this morning stand on the foundation of your word. Change us this morning. Transform us. It's in the image of your son, Jesus. We know you will do it. Scripture says so. God, we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Good morning. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Jonah. We're going to be in, uh, in Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 4. If you hear here last week with us, we, we sort of jumped into the Jonah narrative. And um, as Pastor Bill reminded us, it's easy to read this book and think it's all about Jonah. Jonah did this. Jonah didn't do this. What do we learn from Jonah? Do we be like Jonah do we not be like Jonah? And I think we need to step back and remember that the book of Jonah is about God, about what God's doing for Jonah, not about what Jonah's doing for God. And we're going to see that continue this week. Um, as I mentioned, Pastor Bill covered a number of verses uh, last week, um, one through three, and we learned a lot. God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. And what does he say? He says, nope, not going there. God says, I want want you to go to Nineveh and call them out for their evil. And he says, no. And he doesn't just say no, he flees. And he goes and buys a one-way ticket to the opposite side of the world where Nineveh is. It's kind of funny because this book... Uh, is filled with irony all throughout. I mean, Jonah is a prophet called by God, and from the very beginning of the book, we see Jonah fleeing God and His presence. The very person who's supposed to speak on behalf of God is like, "Nope, I'm not going to do what you say. I'm not going to go preach to those people because I don't want to." So, to say the least, Jonah is certainly not a perfect prophet. The whole text before us this morning, we're going to be starting in verse 4, as I mentioned, going all the way through chapter 1, is a result of Jonah's turning from God. It's a result of Jonah's disobedience. And so this morning, I want to make three observations, if you will, about Jonah's disobedience, which, as you'll see, hopefully, I believe, speak to us today in how we're called to follow God of the Bible, and what He tells us to do. So, the first, we're going to kind of break up our text this morning in in three sections, Um, and the first, what I I want to do first, actually, is I want want to just read the text. Um, Sometimes I I think too much, I'm like, should I read the whole thing, should I read part of it? But I don't think we can ever make a mistake in reading too much of the Bible. So, we're going to read the text this morning, and then we're going to jump in. So, Jonah uh, chapter 1, verse 4. What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. In three nights. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. So, as I mentioned, I want, to, I want to bring out three observations of Jonah's disobedience this morning. The first is going to come from just the first two verses. And it's the first observation is this. Jonah's disobedience wreaks havoc for himself and for others. That's evident from the first four words. But the Lord hurled Notice the storm was sovereignly sent by God. The Lord did this. But Jonah's disobedience. God's trying to get his attention. From the very start of this storm being hurled, we see that not it only affects Jonah, but it affects those around him. Their life is in danger, the mariners who don't know God. They're thinking, what in the world is going on? You see, Jonah thinks he's going to get away with his disobedience just as soon as he's on that ship. But what happens? No, he's in more danger than if he had just gone to Nineveh in the first place. We expect to read, Jonah repented and turned back to God and said, God, please forgive me, I've sinned against you and your mercy, please spare me from the storm. I promise I'll follow you forever, I'll give you the glory and testify about you. He doesn't say that. What do we find Jonah doing? He went into the belly of the ship to sleep. Talk about a verse that we can easily read over. What? Are you kidding me? You're sleeping? Who, who here is a deep sleeper? I, mean, I have to admit, I am. But I, I lived with this guy in college, and he his room was pretty dark, but I'm telling you, he set 17 alarms, and none of them did any good. And if there was a class, I had to memorize the schedule. I'm like, John, you're going to miss your class. You've got to get up. You've got to be there in like 17 minutes, and it takes like 25 to get there. So you're already kind of in a hole here. But, man, talk about being a deep sleeper. Jonah, this middle of the storm, he's like, I'm, hey, guys, I'm just going to head down to the belly of the ship. I'm going to take a quick snooze. Hope you guys are okay. Hope you're going to make it. Are you, are you kidding me? In a time where the prophet of God should be out doing battle, Helping the people he's with. He's sleeping. Jonah is messing around with his sin. He's saying it's not a big deal. We know from Scripture that sin ultimately brings forth death. And Jonah and his shipmates are certainly close to death in this text. We know that if we're not actively trying to root out our sin and kill it, it's going to be returning the favor to us. The smaller your view of sin, the smaller your view of God. Jonah doesn't think his disobedience is a very big deal. So when I thought more about this this verse, Jonah sleeping in the bottom of the ship, I couldn't help but think of this sort of application for us. In what ways are we sleeping where God has called us to be salt and light in this world? Where are we just saying, "Oh, that's they'll be fine. That's not a big deal. I don't I don't really need to speak into that." Yet you claim to be following Jesus. Where are you sleeping? Where am I sleeping? the kind of world that we live in. I mean, here we have a picture of a ship that's about to be broken up by this storm. You can almost see death about to happen. It's the same for our world today. Death is all around us. It's all around us, whether it's it's the war of Ukraine, I want to be sensitive, elementary schools in this country, abortion clinics in the country, even if it becomes personal. I have a friend that just texted me recently, whose wife is having um, struggles post-delivery post with a baby. Death is so near to us. So as I read this text, I I couldn't help but think. Where are we sleeping in our walks with Jesus? Where do we need to be woken up? We need less Jonahs going into the belly of the ship and we need more Davids going out to battle Goliath. But if we're honest, we have to admit so often we're like Jonah. It's easy to do that. It's easy to sleep. Well, for most of us, figuratively, it's easy to sleep. Spiritually, it's easy to sleep. We're prone to go to sleep. We're prone to wander when we should be doing battle in the real world. Now, I just want to press in. I know we're only a few verses in. The next few points are going to be quicker, but I just want to press into this a little bit more and mention a few reasons why I think, as followers of Christ, we can choose to sleep as opposed to fight, meaning we choose to disobey as opposed to obey. And these, by no means, are, are all the reasons. It's not an exhaustive list, but there's just four that came to mind that I think pertain to us, particularly in this text. The first reason we choose to sleep is pretty simple. Distrust. We don't ultimately trust God completely. We don't believe that His ways are higher than than ours. And if your trust is not in God, let me tell you something. It's in something else. You may not know, but it's somewhere. There's something that your ultimate trust is in. It's either in God and His Word, Or something else. Where is your trust? The second reason we we choose to sleep, we choose to disobey, I believe, is is because of fear. Fear causes us to to shrink back. I think fear also causes us not to take risks for the Lord. We don't want to give up this one little word that I think is going to pull at our hearts. We don't like to give up control. Maybe others struggle with that more than you do, but we're humans and we like control and we want to be in control. And when we aren't in control, we fear. We fear things aren't going to go our way, we fear someone else is going to be making all the decisions for me. It causes us to disobey or flee from God's presence third reason, which really could be an umbrella to all this, is, is pride. I know it may sound kind of general, but I think pride is what caused Nineveh to flee from the Lord in the first place. God, you want me to go to these people who are evil and don't deserve to know you? Are you kidding me? I'm not going there. That's pride. The root of pride is what? Is comparison. We compare ourselves to other people. To make ourselves feel better it's what jonah's doing i'm god's prophet i'm i'm cool i'm doing great those are evil people i'm not going to go there and preach to them they don't deserve it do you have pride in your life is pride causing you to disobey the lord no pride certainly doesn't cause you to obey the lord that's for sure the last reason I believe we choose to, to sleep, to disobey instead of fight, is because of bitterness. Again, there's plenty more, but bitterness can cause us just to be callous toward the world and not care about God's creation, not care about relationships, care about other people. Bitterness causes us to look at ourselves and just care about us. Paul certainly has some words for us about bitterness in Ephesians 4. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath put that away. What does he say after that? He says, be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. What great words of encouragement. So I wanted to name these specific reasons, distrust, fear, pride, and bitterness, because sometimes I think we can be so general with our sin. The more general we are with our sin, I think we just get this general God who we hope, oh, maybe he'll just show us some favor. If we get specific with our sin, we know how God has treated us and how he will treat us in the future if we confess that sin to him. We can take our pride to him. We can take our distrust to him. We can take our fear to him, our bitterness to him. We can be honest with him. It's a God who wants us to come to him. So we see that Jonah's disobedience, his, his sin has caused havoc for himself and for others. Secondly, a uh, second observation, we see Jonah's disobedience causes the pagan sailors to come to him and demand answers. What do I mean? Look with me at verse, uh, s- verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots. So they go and cast lots, and the lot falls on Jonah, right? In verse 8, they, they look at Jonah tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. And they ask him all these questions. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? The sailors approach Jonah, the captain specifically, and they tell him, Hey, do something about this. You're this stranger here on this boat. This doesn't only really happen to us. Why is this storm upon us? And then they do this, this sort of pagan ritual, casting a lot. It's kind of like modern day drawing straws. And Jonah's, Jonah's I'm sure, like, oh boy, I'm going to get the short one. Pulls it out, yep, short straw goes to Jonah. He knows it's fallen on him. They ask him these questions, which at the root of these four questions, they're getting at Jonah's identity. They want to know who this guy is. You know, when you meet someone for the first time, where they ask you, what do you do? Where are you from? They hardly even ask you your name. End of the conversation, they're like, wait, what's your name again? We don't care about name anymore. We want to know what you do, where you're from. Back then, it was, where are you from and who's your God? That's what they wanted to know from Jonah. And Jonah gives, I mean, a pretty decent answer. I've got to give him credit. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. He made the sea and the dry land, the sea that's about to kill us. He made this. I'll give him a decent B plus for his answer, telling his resume to these pagan sailors. Notice their response. After he says, I'm a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Look at verse 10. The men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Okay, Jonah just straight up comes out. Hey guys, I'm a prophet of the Lord. I speak on his behalf. And guess what? I ran away from him. What? I bet they're like, they don't even believe in this guy, but they've got to be thinking, what kind of prophet are you? You're a terrible person. You don't follow, you don't do anything right. He just admits that. It says, because he told them fleeing the Lord. Talk about being a hypocrite. Actually, I actually think this is, this is important for this day and age. How many of you have ever been called yourself or, or know of a Christian who's been called a hypocrite? Nobody? You can raise your hand. You're free to do as you please in here. Kind of. We've all heard that, right? Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Move on. How do we respond to that? I think we need to know how to respond to that. We need to know how to be a witness in 2022, in our particular context and in, in our community. Do we just say, "Oh, no, we're not we're not hypocrites. We 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 follow God perfectly. We we do everything we say. Nothing ever has gone wrong in the church in the in the history of mankind." let say, "Are you kidding me? Are you are you ignorant?" So my answer to this question: Are all are Christians hypocrites? Hear me out. I think it's a yes and a no. Certainly, there are people who claim to be Christians, who don't do anything the Bible says, who have no relationship with Jesus, at least it's evident that they don't. It's apparent that there's been no heart change in their life, there's no fruit in their life, and yet they claim to follow Jesus, they judge other people, but then they don't want to be judged. Or maybe, God forbid, I mentioned pastors who urge people to give to the work of the Lord and then put it in their pockets. That's hypocritical. There's tons of other examples I could give. So in some ways, yeah. We can be hypocrites. But when we look at that actual word, the word hypocrite, we we get that word. It really means being an actor on stage. It means playing someone other than who you really are. Intentionally. So on the other hand, I say, no, we're we're not hypocrites because being a follower of, a true follower of Christ says, I'm not perfect. I don't have it all together. I do sin. But there is grace, and I do turn to Jesus. There's humility. And you know what? The world doesn't always respond positively to humility. That doesn't mean we're not supposed to live in humility or show it. Certainly it can look like we're hypocrites, but the heart of being a follower of Christ is admitting our, that we're wrong, that we're more than just wrong, that we're, that we're sinners. But if you follow Jesus, your identity is not in that. Your identity is in Jesus. It's rooted in that truth and what He's done for you. And no one can tell you otherwise. You see, our disobedience Causes the world to come to us and demand answers. Just like Jonah's disobedience causes the pagan sailors to come to him. When we disobey, the world comes to us and says, Wait, wait, wait. Your actions aren't matching up with what you say. And in a way, we are held accountable. But how much more accountable should we hold each other? That's why we're called to live in community. We're called to be humble, to be kind and gentle. Colossians says to speak words that are gracious and seasoned with salt. See, I think Jonah gave a pretty decent answer. Testify about God. I think it was a little wimpy in my opinion. I I haven't had a conversation with Jonah, so I don't really know what his heart was behind it. But God still chose to work in him. And that's what we see with our third observation. Is that Jonah's disobedience does not prohibit God from accomplishing his will. Look with me at verse 11. This is talking about the sailors. They said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more violent, more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up. And hurl me into the sea. God hurled a storm upon them. And now Jonah is saying hurl me into the sea. Saying then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. We don't know the real reason behind why Jonah offers himself to be tossed into the sea. Perhaps, being a prophet, God spoke to him, and we don't have it recorded in our text, and God said, I want you to do this. Maybe. Perhaps he knew the odds were against him. He knew the sailors were going to kill him anyway. He said, just just throw me overboard. I want to be done with this. Or maybe he even doubled down on his disobedience and thought, I would rather die than go to Nineveh and preach to those people. The text doesn't specifically tell us, so in a way... That's speculation. But one pastor I read who wrote a great book on on the whole book of Jonah, New York City pastor Tim Keller, he thinks Jonah is essentially saying this. Jonah is saying to the men, You are dying for me, but I should be dying for you. I'm the one with whom God is angry. Throw me in. Jonah's actions, whether they were done with pure motives or himself, uh, selfish motives, We know that he could not thwart God's sovereign plan. He couldn't do it. This was God's plan from the beginning. And there's no doubt, I think many of us in this room have have said things and done things or things have happened to them where you may say, my life's not going to be the same. How How could God love me because of this? How could I continue to follow him because this happened to me or because I said this? And I'm not here standing, standing here saying that our consequences our action, I mean our actions don't have consequences. They absolutely do. We see that so evident in this text. Our actions, our sin, has consequences. It hurts people. It hurts ourselves. But God's going to accomplish His will. He's going to accomplish His plan. Your disobedience does not prohibit. God from still using you to accomplish His plan that's one of the beautiful things we see in this text Jonah doesn't disqualify himself from being used by God if anything he qualifies himself even more because we see that he's broken that he's a sinner that he turns from God and God still chooses to use him isn't that a comforting thing to hear Jonah had no idea God was going to send a fish that at the same time would swallow him and preserve his life. He could have never thought of that. He also probably even never found out that these pagan sailors turned to him. Notice when they throw him into the sea, the sailors pick him up, they throw him into the sea, the sea ceased from its raging instantly. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, verse 16. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. God's going to turn people to himself however he chooses, whether it's through our disobedience or obedience. But I'm not saying go disobey. God will use it anyway. It's not what the Bible says. We're called to present our members to God as, as instruments of righteousness. We're not called to present our members to to sin as, as unrighteousness. It talks about that in Romans. Talk about Jonah being a terrible missionary. Terrible missionary. And who turns out saved? The people God sent him to. It's it's unbelievable. God does things that we would in his mercy and grace that we would never think of or dream of. And he can certainly do more than we could even ever ask or imagine, as Paul says in, in Ephesians, I believe. So this morning, I've, I know I've talked a ton about disobedience. But here's the good news. I hope there's been some good news along the way. But if you haven't heard it, here you go. God sent his Son into the world to obey his will perfectly. And if you trust in the work of Christ, that he is your, this fancy word that we call propitiation. Okay, so imagine this yourself is my palm. And God, when God looks on you, he sees your sin because it's open before him. Jesus comes and puts himself on top of us. So now when God looks at us, he sees Jesus' work. And the wrath of God is diverted from us onto Jesus. That's the good news. Because of his obedience, we get to walk free. And the good news is, is we don't have to save, we don't have to jump into the water to save ourselves or to save others. God has done that for us in the person of Jesus Christ, his son. He's done that to save us from the inside out, to free us from ourselves, and to make us live for him. In this news, as I mentioned earlier, Paul mentions this in in Romans chapter 6. Are we to sin so that grace may abound? Does he say, yeah, sure. No, he says, no, by no means. How are we to continue, who, who died to sin, how are we to continue living in it? It doesn't make any sense. The reason we can obey is because now we have the right motivation because of what Jesus has done. He gives us the motivation to obey him. To love one another. To follow his commands. If we don't have the proper motivation, how do we turn out? We just turn out to be Pharisees. Empty. Hollow actions. Doing things to get pats on our own back. For our own glory. To be applauded. They thought they were following God, but they didn't have the right motivation. See, a true believer's motivation is found in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That He would give Himself completely for you and for me. And in return, the only proper response is that we would give ourselves completely to Him. Motivation is found not only in the cross, but it's found in the resurrection. I was reading a book recently that talks about how as Christians we've sort of ordered our priorities incorrectly. And by all means... Don't hear me say that Christmas is not important. The birth of Jesus, I love the Christmas season. But Easter, the resurrection, without that, there's no hope. There's nothing. He could have been born great, but if he didn't rise from the dead, then we have no hope of resurrection. We have no hope of eternal life. We have no hope of forgiveness of sins because there would be no power over sin or death or Satan. So as we wrap up, I want to to invite the the worship team up. I want us to reflect on some of this. I read a quote from an author that, that said this. Jonah's conviction was that if he fully surrendered to God, God would not be committed to his good and his joy. I think sometimes we can believe that. If we fully submit and surrender to God, is He really going to do what's best for me? Does He really know? If we're honest, we admit that sometimes we can think that way. We think that if we have to surrender to something else, outside of ourselves, then there won't be any way for us to experience freedom and hope. But it's just the opposite. When we learn that God has come and bore the full weight of our sin upon Himself and offered Himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, for your sin, for my sin, He took on pain, He took on separation from God, we can know that this God is the only God that we can trust. I want you to reflect this morning where have you put your trust where is it now a God who substitutes himself for you and suffers so that you may go free is a God that you can trust there's mercy in the storm may not look like it to us may not look like it to you when you're going through trials there's mercy in the storm The mercy is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I pray that in faith that we would run together towards God. That we'd speak the truth and love to one another. And that we would look ever more fervently upon the God who gave himself for us. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you and we confess this morning that we're sinners, that we need you. We need grace. We need mercy. And we can't give that to ourselves. We find that in you. God, help us to turn to you. Help us not to flee from your presence. Because ultimately, we know that we can't flee from your presence. There's nowhere we can go that you don't see us. That your hand is not upon us, whether we feel it or not. The truth of your word remains. Help us to abide in you, God. To abide in your word. To run to you, to trust you. In the storm. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
1: Amen. And I'm going to have uh, Will, if you could put that last slide up that we were looking at. We're getting ready to take communion. Uh, that last point, I just want you to look at this be reminded we, not only do we not have to save ourselves, Christ has done that for us. He's Provided the sacrifice on our behalf and when we take communion. Communion is a reminder of that. It's a reminder we don't have to be like Jonah. But it's also, as David said, it's a reminder to run to the Lord. So communion is for those people that have received Jesus as Lord and Savior. They've turned from their sin by faith. Turn to Jesus as their only hope for eternal life. So, when we take communion, what we're doing is we're celebrating his body that has been broken for us, his blood that has been shed to cover our sins, so that we have the benefits of that propitiation. That's what David spoke about. If you're not a believer, I'm thankful that you're here, but communion is for those that have received Jesus as Lord and Savior. But I would encourage you. There's never been a time that you've received Jesus as Lord and Savior. I pray that today would be the day of your salvation, that you would turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. Because there is no other hope apart from Jesus. There is no other salvation apart from Jesus. So what we're going to do is we'll have our, our servers both in this aisle and this aisle. You can come down those two aisles and then return to your seats either by the center aisle side aisles and some be coming, passing the elements up above. Um, but what I'm asking you to do is take both cups, go back to your seats after you have them, just pray. The Bible says, do not take these elements in a manner that is unworthy of the Lord. And what he's saying is, don't take these elements with unconfessed sin. It's a great opportunity for all of us. To confess our sins. We know that when we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9 says that he is faithful and just forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So now we can take these elements. Clean hearts. hearts. Let's go ahead and come and grab the elements and we'll, we'll take them together. sacrifice ourselves, but all that's needed to be done for our salvation has been accomplished through the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we remember that. Lord, I'll read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it. often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for the fact that our hope is built. respond to the word this morning, let's stand and
0: sing together.